0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Today's show is taped, so no opportunity for calling in, but please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at The Health Hub RMC on those three sites, and please do feel free to email us at thh@radiomaria.ca at if you have any questions for us. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of your favorite podcast platforms and you can find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website which is radiomaria.ca and on my website which is kathybiasse.com. So I came across uh, an interesting article I was reading just about dental hygiene and things like that and um, it got me thinking about Ways to make our teeth brighter was uh, this is kind of a combination of a conversation my husband and I were having, and of course looking at uh, some magazines and reading this article, and I thought, you know what? Let's pull together a few tips for teeth whitening. It's something that everyone would like. uh, It's hard to achieve, and you know, the reasons that our teeth yellow as as we get older or as we move through life uh, are many reasons. Alcohol, smoking, things that we eat can stain our teeth. Lots of factors, genetics, aging, um, poor dental hygiene, of course, is one of them if you have poor dental hygiene, but um, lots of reasons why it can happen. Some we can't control and some we can, but uh, regardless, I thought I'd pull together just uh, five tips on how you might improve on the color of your teeth. And First of all is oil pulling. We've, We've talked about oil pulling before. And that's when you take coconut oil or traditionally it's been sesame oil and you swish it around your mouth for, you know, some say eight to 10, some other sources say 20 minutes. That can be a little excessive, but you can do that every morning and it uh, helps to to get some bacteria off your teeth. It also helps to get stuff from between your teeth out, but uh, can also help to whiten your teeth. Um, So that's one thing you can do in your daily Oral hygiene regime, or a few times a week. Uh, some people also use olive oil, but um, I tend to go with I tend to go with coconut oil just because I have it. You can also use two teaspoons of apple cider vinegar and put it in a cup of water and swish it around. These are like almost like natural. They used to. Have, I don't even know if they still have them. They used to have pre-washes that you could buy for your mouth before you start brushing your teeth. I have no idea if they still have them or not, but you know, a few years ago, you could brush your, you pre-washed and sort of, I guess, swish things out and then you brushed your teeth. It was kind of like second level for oral hygiene. So anything you swish around your mouth like that, anything healthy can help with uh, your hygiene. Um, Some people find that rubbing peels from citrus, even bananas, I've read, around your teeth, the the d limonene in... um, in the, the citrus peels can help to whiten the teeth. Again, take off some bacteria that shouldn't be there. So another one. Uh, activated charcoal. This is becoming much more commonplace. It's in many, many toothpastes, both in the natural world, and I've actually seen it in the the more common mainstream brands to put charcoal in the toothpaste. And charcoal helps to absorb things on your teeth. That's, that's a fairly well-known whitener, but uh, you can get you can get just activated charcoal and put it on whatever toothpaste you're using and that can help out as well. And then brushing with baking soda. Well, what doesn't baking soda do, right? Just a few tips, especially, you know, on, on if we're still at home and uh, I don't know what, what the situation will be and when, you know, if, if, if dentist office will be open at the time of the airing, I don't know, but just a few tips to um, to help you take your, your dental hygiene to another level. So we have a very interesting guest today, uh, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, and he is MD, is a board certified internal medicine physician, and New York Times best-selling co-author of Brainwash. He's interested in how we make decisions, mental health and behavioral change, and he writes for Psychology Today on his blog, The Modern Brain. Very interesting book, very well-researched book. Uh, I highly recommend it, and uh, a wonderful guest. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Your book, and congratulations on the success of your book. Uh, It's quite an accomplishment. What was the impetus for you for writing the book?
1: You know, it's a long story that takes me through college and med school, School and residency, but I think that the bottom line to all of this is that I wrote this book with my father because we saw this central problem. And that is, people know what they want to be doing differently. They know that they want to be eating healthier food, they know they want to be exercising, and yet they don't do it. So then the question is, why? Why don't we do the things we know we want to do? We know that are good for us. And this book is basically the culmination of multiple years of research into that question. Um, trying to provide the reader with, first of all, the reasons why we don't do the things we want to do and also what they can do to start making better choices and to start reclaiming their health.
0: So in your research, how long did it take you to write the book?
1: Well, the writing itself, maybe about a little over a year, but the, the research for it was over the course of several years, a lot of book reading, a lot of medical literature, and a lot of just conversations with my dad as far as kind of sorting out what are the most relevant points and how do we get that across to the reader in a way that will resonate.
0: And, and then so, you know, you're narrowing down what to put in your book. It's got a lot of very interesting topics in it. How did you funnel it down to what you felt were the key issues that your readers needed to know about?
1: Yeah, that's, that's such an important question. Um, I can tell you I have reams and reams of of papers that we didn't use and uh, notes that I took that we didn't use. And at the end of the day, you know, it has to be a cohesive narrative. And while there were some topics that I felt were very important, they didn't necessarily add to the, the central narrative of the book. So, the way that we overall decided what we were going to include was, again, through this series of conversations that I had with my dad on what he thought was relevant, what I thought was most relevant. And then we worked with Kristen Loberg, who is, as she works with authors like us, medical people, to ensure that the, the studies that we pull, the words that we use, are formatted in a way that people will, will really understand and will really be able to take home. And then we had a, a wonderful editor, we have a wonderful editor at our uh, publishing company, and she did a great job saying, hey, listen, this is interesting stuff, but kind of takes away from the narrative. And then we also have a literary agent named Bonnie Solo, who did a phenomenal job of helping us to stay focused on the goal. But to kind of summarize all of that, It's just a a dynamic process of continuing to revise and making sure that we're pulling forward a a central story so that we are not getting caught in the weeds. Because I know that I can get stuck in uh, an individual paper or a series of papers. And while I find it very interesting, not everyone wants to know about the technical details of receptors in the brain. So um, yeah, a lot of people helped with this, but it was a process that evolved over time.
0: So who is this book intended for?
1: This book is intended for, I mean, I don't want to just say everyone because that's kind of a cop out, but it's, it's really intended for people who feel like despite knowing what they want to be doing differently, they're not able to follow through, meaning they're making poor decisions and despite their best efforts, they can't get around that. So it's for the average person. It's also, I think, if people are in healthcare, if people are trying to help their patients with making better choices, we outline some of, I think, the best research as far as how to use things like dietary strategies, mindfulness and meditation, but even an approach to digital technology that will help people to regain their good choices.
0: What surprised you the most? You know, you have this central idea of making decisions and what goes into, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the physiology and the makeup of the brain. But if you were going to say this really surprised me and it sort of took me down a a lane that I wasn't, really wasn't my passion or wasn't something that I I tended to, what would you say that would be?
1: Yeah, well, there are actually several answers. And I guess if you ask the one thing that surprised me the most, that would be, um, I guess the degree to which our choices have been hijacked by the modern world, the degree to which, you know, we're, despite our best efforts, not able to make good choices because the deck has been stacked against us when it comes to our food, when it comes to our media consumption, when it comes to even our relationships, the default, the status quo is just not good. So I look at the fact that most Americans are overweight or obese. And that's 70 plus percent. And I see that that is a trend that is happening worldwide. And I see that 30-ish percent of people around the world are going to suffer from depression and, or I should say 20-ish percent will suffer from depression and 30-ish percent will suffer from anxiety. And, you know, there's this narrative, which is, this is kind of how things are. And if you have these problems, whether it's your weight or your mood, or your your general health, something like diabetes or heart disease, that's on you for making poor choices. And the reframe of it, which was, again, this really revelatory point, is that we have been set up in such a way that we are going to have to work pretty hard to start making better choices. And then on the other side of that, it is understanding how the circuits in our brain get messed with, such that we continue to make the poor choices, but also how we can rewire them for our own interests, such that we then make good choices and we're able to reclaim our health.
0: So many things I want to take us down. Uh, we have to talk about the physiology, but the, the question that pops into my mind, because we're talking about decisions, is what do you think is the definition of a good decision?
1: Mm. What a wonderful question. Uh, so this gets to I guess, philosophy, and, and I would say I, I can't tell a person what is or isn't a good decision because that's going to be specific to what they care about, what matters to them in their lives, but what I would say is most of us want to achieve certain things in life. We want to, in general, be happier people. We want to, in general, have better relationships. We want to, in general, enjoy good health. And as it relates to those goals, there are decisions that get us closer to the to them and there are decisions that take us further away. And so if we're working backwards from the things that we care about, decisions that get us closer to those outcomes are good decisions as I'm defining it and things that take us away from them are bad decisions. I think too, it's worth considering that certain things are, let's say, good decisions for the short run gain. So that would be saying, right now, I'm hungry and I'm feeling stressed. And so you say having an ice cream cone is going to take care of those two things. But in the long run, that's actually not a good decision. So my bias is that good decisions tend to be more towards the long-term success and overall optimizing for those things I talked about before, for health, for happiness, and good relationships over the course of a lifespan.
0: When we're talking about decisions, we're talking about patterns. And obviously, from the way you're talking, one decision leads to another decision, leads to another decision, which asks the question, as far as I'm concerned, once you've gone down that rabbit hole of a few bad decisions, is our brain physiologically being changed that's going to continue us down that rabbit hole, or can we pull back? rewire and go down the path of good decision.
1: Well, both of those things are correct. As we make poor decisions, our brains are wired for more poor choices, but we still have the power to undo that and to wire them for good decisions. Now, this is a a central theme in the book, and it's something that sounds simple, but is really important to understand. And that is, we like to look at our choices as something that we have complete autonomy over, meaning You walk up to, let's say, the store. You get to decide whether you're going to buy a bag of potato chips or a bag of kale. And at that point, you have a 50-50 chance, depending on whatever you want to do, of buying the healthy or the unhealthy option. As in, you have complete autonomy over that choice. The truth is that our choices are a reflection of the way that our bodies and our brains are set up. So if you have a brain that has been set up to make poor choices, specifically around food, then it's much more likely you're going to pick the bag of potato chips over the kale. For example, too, this changes on the course of hours, minutes, days. So if you didn't get a good sleep the night before, you will be more likely to make a poor food choice the next day. And so what I'm talking about is by the time you get to the point of making a decision, a lot of that choice has already been made for you because it is going to be determined by the wiring of your brain, by the neurotransmitters in your brain, but also by other parts of your body and have those funnel into your brain and change the way that it's activated. To get to your point about the brain wiring, we know that what we do changes our brain wiring. The brain is set up to adapt to our environment. So if you're somebody who practices sports for eight hours a day, your brain is going to be set up to make you better at sports. It's going to know those, um, those pathways. Let's say you're shooting free throws. That pathway through the brain and through a lot of kind of unconscious loops as well is going to be very well maintained so that it can activate it on command. But if you're somebody who on the other side is spending all of your time eating junk food, and engaging in the habits around, let's say, engaging with a whole bunch of digital media or not exercising, you're going to ingrain those pathways into the brain to make it harder for you to get out of them and then do the opposing thing. So it's, in essence, this is how habits develop, right? So with habits, your brain starts to offload things from your conscious processing and makes them unconscious. You just do them without thinking, And that means that those neurons, those pathways in the brain, are just going to take care of themselves without you having to do much about it. With that said, there is an opportunity with all of this, if we're conscious for just a moment of what we're doing, to say, I'm no longer happy with the foods that I'm eating. I'm no longer happy with the amount of exercise I am not getting. And to say that I'm going to set up my brain to make it more likely that I do those good things more of the time. So really what we're doing here is trying to increase the chances that we make good choices. It's a probability game. And the way that we do that is we start taking away the negative influences on our brain wiring and start consciously wiring our brains to make the healthy choices more likely.
0: I have two questions that are popping up. Um, First of all, if we develop these patterns of, say, choosing incorrectly. And, you know, you're talking about health and food and everything. Did you find that the brain in general makes, or we in general, because of the wiring, overall make poor decisions far removed from health? Like just poor decisions in general? Or is each decision, is each area, let's say, of decision its own separate entity? I guess what I'm trying to say is a person who makes good decisions generally going to make good decisions throughout the piece and vice versa.
1: Well, I think there there is evidence that certain aspects of brain function and decision-making go through multiple aspects of life. So, for example, the ability to have more self-control translates into lower likelihood of having issues with criminal behavior, with lower issues of health issues, and with more financial stability later in life. So in some ways, these things do translate into multiple domains. But you also have people um, who are very good at making decisions in certain aspects of their lives, but very poor at making decisions in other aspects of their lives. And I think some of that can be attributed to the way that various pieces of the brain are wired. So for example, some of us may be very good at making, uh, let's say, Decisions as to it relates to our finances. Um, But when it comes to emotional reactivity, we have major issues. Mm -hmm. And so we know that the emotional reactivity part of our brain might be a little bit different from what is necessary to make good financial choices. But again, if that emotional hub of the brain gets activated at the same time we have to make a financial choice, that might throw everything off. So I guess to try to answer your question here a little bit more specifically, I think there is tremendous overlap in different aspects of decision-making, but as it relates to just the very basics of what the average person should try to do, really what we talk about in the book and really where I would focus my attention is you can deactivate the parts of your brain that make you more impulsive, that make you more emotionally reactive, and you can try to activate the part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the frontmost part of your brain. Which enables you to be more reflective as opposed to reactive. And I think that, again, for the average person, is the best way to start leading towards better overall decisions across a variety of domains of life.
0: I have so many things that are popping into okay. my head. I want to ask you about, um, and and this this may be totally uh, off topic, but I have to. Are you when you have done your research? Have you compared, say, an adult of thirty to forty range and a child of between 10, a younger person between say 10 and 20, because their wiring with the, the impact and the social media and the constant, 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 are their brains wired differently than ours?
1: Oh, so if your question is, are young people's brains set up differently from adults brains? And the answer is yes. And I think it's too early to be able to tell whether there's an added difference from exposure to screens. We're getting some early signals um, as far as whether there are changes in the brain associated with screen time, um, social media and the like. But again, I think too early to know whether that is something solid. What we do know is that as we age, our brain goes through transitions and uh, as it relates to decision-making, one of those transitions has to do with the relative speed of development of different parts of the brain. So the prefrontal cortex that I was just mentioning that is essential for good, thought-out decisions tends to take a while to mature, so it doesn't really mature until our 20s. That means that younger people may not have that kind of supervisoring, supervisor adult in the room that comes from that part of the brain. So as it relates to making good decisions, that's not all online yet. The interesting thing too, though, is, so part of that is the prefrontal cortex, part of that is the dopamine system in the brain, which is, it's a lot more than just the reward system. Um, It actually turns out that there are differences in the dopamine function levels that happen earlier in life as well as later in life. And that's actually been associated with the reason why, perhaps younger people, as well as older people, may be more prone to making poor choices. So in, early in life, because the brain hasn't developed in much, as much, and later in life, because it's actually degenerated in certain parts, of these, uh, certain parts of the brain and also changes in that dopamine system, that might explain in part why older people can be more likely to be, let's say, victim in scams, um, but also potentially make poor decisions in other aspects of life.
0: So interesting. So uh, as far as younger kids, maybe you'll go a little bit farther. They're sure. stimulated constantly. Their their stimulation is farm with screens, with, um, and just the way they're learning compared to what we did. And I find uh, the big difference between, say, me and my 20-year-old daughter is I will take the time to drill down to make a decision, whereas her decisions, and she's 20, are a lot more – off the cuff, should I say, because she's ha- it seems to me that they have to make these decisions quicker, even with, um, I don't know how to explain it, whereas we maybe had to go to an encyclopedia and sit down and look <laughs> things up. They have Google, and it's done in two minutes. Um, is that, do you think, going to change the structure of people's brains going forward
1: yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about there, and it's such a fascinating topic. And, um, I, you know, I, I think about my medical training and how medical training has changed over the last several decades. Um, several decades ago, there weren't thousands and thousands of medications to know about, each of which has its own side effects and its own dosing. And so what that meant is people back in the day, and I say back in the day just kind of generally... Um, would have to carry around a lot of knowledge in their brains because they didn't have access to these digital devices where they could look things up on command. So there would be more um, memorization and then application and seeing what happened. And even in the start of my medical training, we were using, we were carrying around these little booklets with all of this important medical information in it so that we could look it up if we needed to. But again, with the assumption that we would need to know a lot of it, have a lot of it in our heads, but very quickly, it became apparent that there was no way to carry around enough information without hauling around a a wheelbarrow worth of textbooks. So that transitioned into the use of various um, websites, things like UpToDate, Dynamed, that are in essence um, repositories of all of this medical information. So what I see is in medicine and pretty much across the board, what we're doing now is having a, a basic idea, a basic framework of where we need to go to look for things. And yeah, we need to know some of the essentials in medicine so that when people are, are decompensating very quickly, we know what to do. But there's just so much data available that unless we are extreme specialists and really only need to know about a small region of information, we just need to know where to access this this data. So what is that doing then? To get to your original question, to our brains, what is it doing to the wiring of our brains you know i don 't think that anyone is is sure about that um, there is there 's evidence perhaps that people are increasingly distracted that they 're not able to stay on task as long, and that might be in part because of this uh, fascination preoccupation with this multitasking myth where we 're able to be on our phones at the same time as we 're emailing, talking to people. In the room, which you know, really doesn't work. The brain isn't set up to do parallel processing like that. But I think we're going to have to just wait and see. Um, In some ways, though, it is a reflection of what is necessary in the world: is that we need people who are able to access information very quickly. But I imagine it'd be very interesting to compare cultures where having a, a deep understanding, as you referred to originally of certain topics is more valuable. And then seeing when people are around the same age, what changes there might be in their brains when comparing them in scans.
0: Yeah, I find it a fascinating topic. And I guess I guess that's more into the ability for our brain to adapt as things are changing in our society. We're going to take a quick break and come back. And I have a million questions. I'm sure I'm not gonna get to them all, but um, everyone will be back with Dr. Perlmutter in just a couple of minutes.
2: I refuse to leave as I came I refuse to remain the same Lord for you There is nothing I won't change I refuse to leave here unchanged I refuse Worship in vain, Lord. For You, there is nothing I won't change. Ooh, yes. If You delight in sacrifice, I would bring it to You. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. But my side I'm with
0: Welcome back, everybody. Great conversation here with Dr. Perlmutter, the author of Brainwash. So, again, so many things popping into my brain. With respect to choice, then, um, is memory a part of our decision-making process? Because this kind of takes us back to what we were talking about before the break. Some of us have been brought up to memorize things and move forward, the rest of us, my daughter wouldn't know North, South, East, West if it saved her because she's got Google Maps. So is memory an important part of decision-making or do they come together at all?
1: Hmm. That is a really interesting question as well. You're, doing, you're asking some very good questions. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess it's, it's worth kind of asking ourselves, what do we mean by memory? Because there are different types of memory, right? There's uh, more factual memory declarative memory things like uh you could remember the the date of the civil war and then there's more of the the muscle memory the things that we can't necessarily put into words but we we know in our bodies right so i guess what you're referring to specifically is the things that we could recall if we needed to things we could put down on a quiz um, multiple choice or otherwise and and I think that, you know, sure, that that is, is necessary in certain types of decision making. But if you ask yourself, what does it mean then to, act, to make a decision? We make so many decisions in the course of a day that are unconscious. If you're walking down the street, you're not thinking, okay, I need to take my left foot and move it forward two feet, and then I'm going to pick up my right foot and then move it forward a couple of feet. These are things that we do, but you could argue that they're decisions because we had the choice to do it or not to do it. So I think really what's important is to say, what are the key decisions that matter most to these topics I referenced in the first half of this, which are our health, our relationships, I mean, really, I guess our mental health too, Um, but to understand what what are the key decisions that are going to significantly influence those outcomes. And as it relates to that, I think that it's worth considering our food choices, our choices around relationships, our choices around sleep, um, our choices around how we interface with stress, our choices around how we interface with inflammation in our lives. So these are all kind of the, the key points at which we determine whether we'll wind up healthy, unhealthy, happy, unhappy. And in these key moments, you actually need to have Two types of decisions happening. One would be an unconscious, habit based decision. These are things that you want to automate, these are things that you want to have your body naturally do that are in your favor. And then the other is you're going to need to have the more thoughtful, conscious decisions happening. So that would be, for example, you show up at work and they have brought in donuts, your coworker has brought in donuts you want to have both of those things online. The habit-based system where you're thinking, or you're actually not thinking, but where your body just doesn't naturally think that we are going to be eating those donuts because that's just not what we do. And instead, we stick to a routine of drinking tea in the morning and avoiding all food until 10 a.m. because you're doing intermittent fasting or whatever. So that's the unconscious piece. And then the conscious piece is when you are actually pushed a little bit you're able to reflect and say oh i'm not going to eat those donuts for the following reasons i'm actually working on my health right now i'm actually trying to wait until 10 a.m before i eat i'm actually trying to be responsible and i'm working with a small group of people and we're all uh, trying to eat healthier this month so in each of those cases there are things that we can do To reinforce our ability to make those types of choices. And I hope I wasn't rambling there too much, Mm -hmm. but it's it's tough to know exactly, again, what we mean by memory. So in this case, you want to say, my memory is I need to recall these strategies that I have so that I know how to avoid these foods when they become present. So maybe for you, that's every time this happens, I instead go to the water cooler and I drink a, a big thing of water because that makes me less hungry. And it also reminds me that that is my key strategy so that I don't want to eat the donuts. But also, again, that habit-based loop where your brain just remembers, or I guess maybe memory isn't the right word, that you are not, in general, the type of person who eats those types of food.
0: The the, the thing that, we may never know the answer to these questions, but to me, a lot of history and habit go into your decision-making. And, is the total constant and changing amount of choice that is presented to us in every facet of our life is it messing with our decision making and mental health or is it enhancing it because honestly and maybe because I'm not in the 20-year-old sphere um I I walk into a restaurant and I don't want, I used to walk into a restaurant and I don't want a menu that's got five pages of choice. Give me two pages. And I don't know if that's my, uh, you know, 50 brain saying that or if it's just the way I was brought up. I think there's so much choice out there that it is overwhelming in the decision-making process.
1: Well, there have been a lot of, people talking about this in the last few years. And I think of um, Barry Schwartz with the paradox of choice. I think of decision fatigue and these things kind of relate to this idea of willpower depletion or ego depletion that we have a finite amount of willpower and that it is depleted over the course of the day as we're forced to make all of these decisions. So actually the research on that has been a little bit back and forth and it's not as clear whether willpower actually does get depleted and it's instead it might be whether you believe your willpower gets depleted, that's more important, which is kind of another whole tangent and conversation. But I think just on a practical level, um, you know, people are uncomfortable when they're having to choose between 800 menu items or, um, in the grocery store between 30 types of ketchup. It just isn't as much fun. And it turns out that people are, they don't enjoy it as much. Um, I think that, uh, you know, kind of the bigger picture thing here is that there is so much access to um, primarily through media, through digital media of ways to distract ourselves at any given moment. You could log on and check your social accounts. um, And obviously, there are a range of those. You could go um, watch videos online. You could go um, either on an app or on the website. You could just surf the web. You could text your friends. So these are all opportunities that are available to us 24-7. Now, that's great in some ways. It's wonderful, like I said, to have access to information. If I'm in the hospital and something's going wrong, you can look it up right away and get the latest study on this, which is really great to know the guidelines. But I think where this becomes a problem is when there are so many choices and so many of those choices are purposely designed to be very low cost, very easy to to engage with, it is going to take us away from some of the more important options that are a little bit harder to invest in. So a great example of this is, let's say before the pandemic, you could on a given evening, either call up a friend, go out and meet a friend, or just spend a few hours playing video games on social media, watching TV. The last three options are so easy. And even if they are overall not as beneficial to us and to our mental and physical health as getting out, walking around, and meeting up with a friend or even just talking to a friend on the phone, they have been structured in such a way that it's almost irresistible because you could, you set up, you have a two-minute window, you open up your phone, and next thing you know, you've spent 30 minutes. And It's not as though you really enjoy it that much. I mean, there was some interesting research that said the most common feeling that people get when they're watching a lot of TV It's just a kind of depressed sense. And it's because it's so easy to do and those options are so available that we we gravitate towards them Um, at the expense of the more meaningful choices, which are a little bit more difficult as as an entry energy level, right? You have to have the activation energy to start that next thing, dial up your friend's number on the phone or leave the house to meet up with your friends at a restaurant or a bar. But yet those are the better choices. So my, my overall perspective on this is, yes, we have a ton of choices, but the majority of the choices that we choose more frequently tend to be those with very low barriers to entry. And those also tend to be the ones that kind of lock us into patterns of making poor choices, distracting us from the more important choices that should be higher up on our, our list.
0: At the risk of asking this question and, and others not being able to be included here, what does it matter? Why do we need to care about how we make decisions?
1: Yeah. Yeah, what a what a good question. I mean, that again gets into philosophy. And you've got to ask yourself, why should you care about anything? Or why do you care about anything? And for people out there listening, I would I would urge you to ask, what is it that you do care about in life? I mean, is it making a bunch of money? Is it buying a new car, having a new house? If those are your objectives, then yeah, even then making good choices is important because if you want to make money, you need to make good choices around your finances. But hopefully if you take another step and say, actually what I want is to have an enjoyable life, to have a meaningful life, to spend time with people I care about and to contribute to society, Then you say, what are the factors that are necessary to ensure that that happens? And it turns out that those things are things like having good health so that you're able to experience life to the fullest. Yes, to some extent, it's being financially stable so that you aren't always worried about where the next couple of dollars come from. It's being in good relationships and not being emotionally reactive so you don't scare off the people that matter most to you. And for those things you need to make choices. You need to make good choices. So a choice, for example, would be deciding whether you're going to yell at your partner or not over something silly like who is watching TV that night. I mean, objectively, it's not a good plan, but it's something that is a choice for some of us when we're capable of seeing it as a choice. And so kind of the meta level of this is if you're able to say, that what you care about is having a long-term life of high quality. And then you say things that contribute to that include, let's say, good relationships. And then you say the things that contribute to good relationships are having good choices around how you interact with your partner. And the things that determine how you make those choices around how you interact with your partner might be things that you get to decide on right now, like the food that you eat, the sleep that you get, the amount of inflammation that you're exposed to, Then all of a sudden it becomes so relevant and so practical to think about your choices because with your choices, as you make better choices, you literally get this powerful lever that will enable you to improve every aspect of your life. But it requires you to take that pause and say, well, what is it that I actually do care about and how do I get there?
0: Okay, so through the interview, you've 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 hearkened to the health, and I've I've pulled this back to the end because I think this is probably the largest talking piece here. Um, Decision making. Is and and the health of the brain and the psychology of a decision cannot be extracted from the physiology of the brain. And I have to um, I have to assume that as you are understanding more of the physiology of the brain and how that knowledge is evolving, that this topic of decision making becomes far more than just concepts and ideas and beliefs. That it's the impact of the physiology of the brain that quite quite um, impacts our decision-making. So you've talked about inflammation and health and what you eat and social media. But this whole other idea that we've come through, and I don't know the, the, um, the span that this knowledge has been around for, but the blood-brain barrier that we used to think was um, impenetrable is now no longer the belief. It's no longer the understanding. We have found, you have found, I certainly have just read about it, um, that the blood-brain barrier can be um, penetrated. We also know that you can rewire your brain. We also know that the brain has a link to the immune system. So can you speak to what you think of, you know, this area, this new area of the brain what do you find is the most impactful in the new knowledge that you've come to to understand and research?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we could get really deep into the the blood brain barrier and, and how these things interface. But I would say the stuff that is most interesting to me right now is the microbiome, the brain's immune system and the communication between those two things. So, We know, and your listeners probably know, that you have this massive amount of bacteria living in your gastrointestinal tract. We call them the gut microbiome. It's made of um, bacteria, viruses, archaea, fungi, but primarily we're worried about or considering the bacteria. And these bacteria create a range of different products, some of them helpful, some of them harmful. But some of those, well, I should say a lot of those bacterial products get picked up by nerve endings in our gut and get actually picked up by immune cells in our gut. And so then you have all of these messages that either through the nerves or through the bloodstream or through the endocrine system, the immune system, reach the brain. And so you mentioned before the blood-brain barrier isn't this wall that keeps everything out. But even if it was, The nerve itself, specifically the vagus nerve, is capable of transmitting information from the gut to the brain. It's capable of transmitting inflammatory signals from the gut to the brain, let alone what we mentioned, which is the blood-brain barrier, can break down and things can get through it when it's damaged. But even when it's not damaged, it's permeable to certain substances, certain neurotransmitters, which, interestingly enough, can be made by the gut microbiome. So then all of these signals get into the brain. And the question is, how does it all influence the brain? And one of the most revolutionary ways that I've seen this looked at is through these cells called microglia. Microglial cells are literally immune cells that live in the brain. And this is nothing new. It's actually been known for over 100 years that these cells existed, but it really throws off this idea that the brain is cut off from the rest of the body and isn't interacting with it because these immune cells, these microglial cells in the brain are modified by the food that we eat, the stress that we get, the composition of the gut microbiome. So it's absolutely fascinating. And what these cells seem to do is they're the support network for the neurons among other cells, these glial cells. They actually decide whether certain neurons get to grow or unfortunately die, or perhaps that's necessary in some cases. They support the connections between neurons. And so that means they're involved with memory, for example. That means that they're involved with how we make decisions because they're changing the wiring of the brain. And basically what I think is so important about all of this is it provides the conduit, the understanding. For how our lifestyle choices, things like exercise and food, and even things like mindfulness and meditation, through these various systems, like the microbiome and the gut and the microglial cells, are influencing the structure, the chemical makeup of our brains, and then, by doing so, influencing our decision making. So, now you take these signals from the outside world, whether it's the food that we eat or even the media that we consume, and you see how that affects these various systems in the body and how that then affects the brain. And then you get so, I believe, so empowered to feel that you can then modulate all of these systems through healthier choices and thereby create positive change at all these different levels of your body. So... I would say for anybody listening, I mean, this is kind of technical stuff to, to hear about these cells and the like, but the take-home message is that we are starting to understand the, the system, the dynamic interplay between your environment, the outside world, and your brain, how it goes through these different parts of your body and how the food that you eat, for example, by changing your microbiome can then translate into signals that get into your brain through these microglial cells, then change the wiring of your brain and then leads you to making either good or bad decisions about the food that you
0: eat. So it's pretty amazing stuff. It is. And I think one of the key things and the things that I always hearken on when I'm working with people is empowering. And when you talk about the microbiome, you're talking about a, a very movable piece of our health that we empower. The microbiome is affected more by our decisions than by anything else when it comes to, uh, you know, what we eat, our state of mind. And I find that this is, this is such, you brought it forward so beautifully. Our health is so much more in our hands than we ever thought And I think that it's so important that people understand this and this connection, the brain and the gut. And it's almost like, you know, when you were talking about the blood brain barrier and you're talking about the gut and we know that the gut is, you know, basically it's an accordion in and out to let things in and keep things out. And, you know, maybe the blood brain barrier is something we look at that way as well, that it's this movable piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And just to your point about the microbiome and how much it changes day to day, I mean, The microbiome has a circadian rhythm with what it produces, so it changes over the course of the day. But the analogy that I like to use is thinking about your health and what you do with your choices as supporting a colony that you are kind of at the head of this giant colony of trillions and trillions of individuals. In this case, they happen to be your own cells and the microbiome, which is comprised of at least as many cells as we have in our body, something in the neighborhood of probably 30 trillion or more. And so what you're feeding, you think you're feeding yourself, you're actually feeding this microbiome. And when you feed them the right foods they are going to go to work for you. They're going to go to bat for you and they're going to keep you healthy. They're going to send out messages throughout the body through these short chain fatty acids that are going to keep you in tip top shape. But if you don't look after them, if you're eating junk food all the time, then they are going to suffer and you're going to have some bad guys moving in and the neighborhood isn't going to be a safe down there. And so people aren't going to be able to do good work and you're going to experience that through a, a myriad of different health concerns. But what you said was so important which is this is probably the biggest way that our decisions influence our health because every day with every bite that you take you are voting for the health of that colony and the health of that colony is a vote for your overall health so it is such a again empowering notion that you can reclaim your health through supporting the microbiome on an hourly basis by the exercise you get by the stress or de-stressing interventions that you you engage with even by something like the sleep that you get which we know also the microbiome changes with sleep so it is such an unbelievable area of research but you know there's a lot there's a lot of research out there that's really interesting like quantum physics very interesting the question is how much does that apply to improving my quality of life today i'm not sure but with the microbiome it very much does you can start today to reclaim your health through this knowledge.
0: Excellent. Now, what's what's on the table moving forward? This book is out. Are you are you just happy and, and working the book now? Or you said you had a ton of other papers that interested you?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so the, the big areas that I'm focusing my effort right now on uh, include immunology, um, neuroimmunology, and then psychoneuroimmunology, which is basically saying immunology of the brain and then putting on the added layer of our thoughts. Uh, So that, as it relates to the microbiome, the microglial cells, and of course, our decision making in general. But I'm really interested in specifically mood issues, because I think that those are relevant to our decision making, but also just our overall quality of life. And my sense is that there's a lot that is understood about things like depression and anxiety um, and trauma to some extent as well. That, um, that hasn't been brought to lay people in a way that they can really use it. Um, as it relates to depression, we have, for the most part, been caught up in this monoamine hypothesis, which is basically that our depressive symptoms are a reflection of having too little of neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter imbalance like serotonin. And, you know, it's, it's not that straightforward. And what we're now learning is that there's this neurogenesis component to it. So it has to do with how many new brain cells we have in the hippocampus. And wouldn't you know it, that is influenced by stress, by the microbiome, by the microglial cells, by things like exercise. So there are all these different ways of looking at mood disorders that get us outside of this whole blame game where it's, oh, you just have this problem and you need to snap out of it and saying no, we actually understand a lot more of what's going on in the brain, what's going on in the gut, what's going on with the stress response. And so I I really want to bring that knowledge to the lay public so that they can benefit from it. Um, The last kind of major project that I'm working on right now is around the combination of psychology and philosophy and neuroscience, because my sense is that we are kind of separating these two realms of uh, of, of learning. Um, you know, philosophy is one thing, but medicine is another thing. Medicine is straightforward science, which is here's what you need to do to improve your health. And then psychology is somewhere in between, but philosophy is, oh, well, that's just life stuff. That's not really about health. The truth is none of this stuff really matters unless it fits into your definition of what matters in life. And I've mentioned this a couple of times on this podcast, um, but the philosophy has to come to play here. It has to be part of this. And when you think about the fact that various philosophical styles feed into various patterns of brain activation and how those translate into psychological health and to general health, I just think it's an entire realm of of medicine, I guess, or of thinking that we haven't touched on nearly enough.
0: Fascinating. That just begs another show, I guess, because there's so many things we still didn't get to. Uh, Brainwash, where can we get it?
1: Well, you can find it, uh, I think, basically anywhere that books are sold. um, You can get it online on major bookstores. And I don't know if bookstores are open, depending on where you are at in the world right now. But if bookstores are open, things like Barnes & Noble and Books A Million, they all have it. Um, And yeah, if you're interested in learning more, the website is brainwashbook.com. And so we have links there if you're trying to get the book online.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. What a great conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed having you. I really did, Dr. Perlmutter.
1: Thank you so much for asking such wonderful questions.
0: My pleasure. That's what we try and do here. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub.